Open up your Bible, your copy of God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We'll again be reading the Lord's Prayer, which will be verses 9 through 13. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. We'll read that here in just a second. We are concluding today the Lord's Prayer. We're looking at the sixth and the final petition of the Lord's Prayer. Now, our study of the Lord's Prayer has simply been part of our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, has just been part of our larger journey through the life of Christ, which is a, a sermon series we've entitled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which is a chronological, verse-by-verse journey through the life of Christ using all four of the Gospels. So we do have a few visitors here this morning, and, and at Harbin's we like to preach through the Bible, verse-by-verse. That's how we normally approach the preaching ministry of the church. Now, there are times we do series and, and special sermons here or there, but for the most part, we go verse-by-verse through the Bible, and we're doing that right now through all four of the Gospels. But we're harmonizing the Gospels in the process. And so by the end of this sermon series, we will have preached through all four Gospels. As we get ready to read the Lord's Prayer this morning, I'll remind you of its context. The Sermon on the Mount is a sermon that Jesus delivered to his disciples, to kingdom citizens. And the sermon is about what it looks like to live in the kingdom. This sermon is basically King Jesus speaking to kingdom citizens about kingdom living. And that kingdom living should be a way of life that brings glory to our Father who is in heaven. It's a way of life whereby we, his children, look like him. It's a way of life enabled by our faith in, in our union with Jesus, who perfectly obeyed the Father, and who is doing a work in us so that we can be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Of course, we will not be perfect in this lifetime until we are with Christ, But we should be on an upward track of holiness. That should be the pattern that marks every true believer is is an upward path of holiness. But with a call to holiness, as I've mentioned the last few weeks, always comes a great temptation to hypocrisy. And so that's why Jesus gives us chapter 6. Because in chapter 6, he's dealing with hypocrisy. He wants us to do our acts of righteousness, our giving, our fasting, and our praying in such a way that it's true, that it's from the heart. It's not superficial, it's not empty, and it's not hypocritical. So Jesus, as he's teaching on prayer, actually takes a little bit extra time to teach a little bit extra on prayer. And in that extra section on prayer, he gives us the Lord's Prayer, which is what we have here in chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. So this is Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray, giving them a pattern for prayer. So please stand now. In honor of the reading of God's word, as we get ready to read Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts As we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do believe that the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And it's with that confidence that I stand here this morning and read the word and preach the word. That it is your word that does not return void. It is your word that accomplishes every purpose for which you send it out. So, Father, my fear as I stand and preach is not in your word. It's in me. And so I ask this morning, Father, that you grant me the grace to preach it rightly, accurately. Strike any error from my lips. And, Lord, it's not just the problem of me. It's the problem of us. Because, Father, we have ears that want to hear what we want, what our flesh wants. So, Lord, give us ears to hear this morning, to hear the word properly, to hear your word and let it change us, Father. So, Lord, we pray and we thank you this morning for your word. And now we ask that you bless this time of preaching it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Olivia has a little side business that she does where she does animal sitting. 
I think we've only taken care of dogs so far. Is that right? So basically it's dog sitting right now. But she does uh, animal boarding, pet boarding. And so we get pets, these animals, these dogs that come to our house from time to time. And, and I was thinking about that this, this weekend as we had, a, we had a, the Salas' dog this weekend. You notice the Salas' aren't here. Pray for them as they're traveling back. Um, we had their dog this weekend. And, and that's a really good dog. Now, I'm not trying to make you jealous out there. I'm not trying to pit one family's dog against another family's dog. Y'all, you, if, if you do, go, you need to go back and listen to last week's sermon and deal with all those issues, all right? I'm just saying it's a good dog. And you don't have to put a leash on that dog. That dog just stays right there with you. If you tell that dog to come back, it comes back, no problems. But most dogs, pretty much every other dog we've had, you're going to have to put a leash on the dog. And so I've got a, a leash here this morning, one of these, you know, extend a, extend a leash thingies, all right? So you, you put one of these things on the dog, and the dog goes, and you hear a little sound, you know, and it takes off, and then it hits the end of that extended leash, and boom, if it's like the Pierce's dog, it's a little white dog, it does a little flip in the air and lands, and so, you know, and <coughs> the, the, you've got to put them on these, these leashes, right? Now, why, why do you have to put a dog on a leash? Because the dog needs to be led, because dogs are stupid, right? Dogs need to be led. Now, I know I'm a dog person. I like dogs better than cats, but, but most dogs aren't real bright, and they need some help. So if I don't put the leash on the dog and it help lead the dog, the dog will, well, he might run out into the road and get splattered by a car, all right? Or he might run into the neighbor's yard and get eaten by the pit bull. That wouldn't be good for the business, would it? Um, or he might see a, a chipmunk, and uh, decide he's going to go after that chipmunk, and that chipmunk runs off down the road into the next neighborhood, and then there goes Fido. All right, and we, so you got to have the leash to help lead the dog and protect the dog. Now, I was using this illustration this morning to help us as we think about this last petition. Okay, if dogs are stupid, sheep are much more stupid, all right? And the Lord uses sheep to refer to us. Okay, sheep really have a problem with wandering. They are really prone to wander, as we sang earlier. And, and we, we are prone because of our flesh to go after things we shouldn't go after. We, um, first of all, we just live in a dangerous world, like a dog running out into a street. And, and this world will, will, will destroy us if we don't have help, if we're not led. Or like a dog going into the neighbor's Yar with the mean pit bull, we have an enemy who wants to devour us. And we need help. We need to be led. Or like the dog that goes after the chipmunk, our own flesh leads us astray. And we go after things of the world because we want them. And we need help. We need to be led. And so we come to the sixth and final petition of the Lord's Prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. From evil. Now, before we get into that final petition, I need to remind us, take a few moments to remind us of where we've come so far on this journey through the Lord's Prayer. And I do hope that this journey has been helpful for you. I know that it's been helpful for me. I've been very convicted about my prayer life as I've preached through the, the Lord's Prayer. And uh, so uh, hopefully this has been helpful for you, and which it should be because this is Jesus' model prayer he gives us. Now this prayer, I will remind you, is, a, is not, I should say, a mantra. It's not a prayer mantra that we just mindlessly repeat. And unfortunately, some people use the Lord's Prayer in that sort of way. They just repeat it like it's a formula that's going to be magic, make things happen. That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus told us in, in verses, six, uh, verses 7 and 8 regarding how to pray. So it's not a mantra prayer to be re- repeated mindlessly. It's a model prayer to be followed thoughtfully, carefully. It teaches us how we are to approach God, and it gives us six petitions that pretty much cover, every, that do cover what it is we are to request of our Father. So how and what. How we approach God and what we are to ask. So first of all, we looked at a few weeks back how we're to approach God in prayer, and we looked at our Father in heaven And so we are to approach him confidently because of his intimacy with us. He is our father. He is our papa. He is our Abba. But also he is our father in heaven. So we are to approach him reverently because of his transcendency over us. So we have intimacy with our father, but he is transcendent and we approach him that way. 
So what are the, we then to ask of our Father? What are we to, to, to request? And there's six petitions that Jesus gives us. The first one is, hallowed be your name, or hallowed be your name. And, and that, as, you, as you'll remember, I gave us, I meant to put these back on the screen, I totally forgot. I give us six Ps that kind of help us remember the six petitions. First, we are to pray for God's person to be magnified. God's person to be magnified. That's what hallowed be your name is all about, is God's person, his name, the fame of his name being spread. And that naturally leads to the next petition, your kingdom come. And so we are praying for God's program to be fulfilled, for God's kingdom to come. And and you'll remember that when we pray that, we're praying for a greater rule of King Jesus here in our life, but also a greater recognition of King Jesus in our world. And finally, the great return of King Jesus in all his power. And then we're to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that means we're praying for God's purposes to be accomplished. So God's person to be magnified, his program to be fulfilled, his purposes to be accomplished. And and we talked that week, and, and, and honestly, that's the sermon I've gotten the most feedback on, by the way, as far as it being helpful. We are, we are commanded to actively obey what our Father commands. We are, we are praying, I should say, that we actively obey what our Father commands. And remember, that's God's revealed will, which is right here. We have what God has given us to obey right here. This is his revealed will. I want to know the will of God. People ask that question all the time. Have you read this? <laughs> here it is. And then secondly, we are, to, we are praying that we and others will patiently submit to what our Father decrees. Now that's the secret will of God. Whatever our Father decrees, here's the deal. Do you want to know the will of God? There's some things you cannot know. The question is, are you going to submit to them? Submitting to the decrees of our Father. Now those are the first three petitions. And those first, thir- first three petitions are aimed at God. And then the next three petitions are aimed at our needs. So the first ones are, are, are the prayer requests. The next ones are we prayer requests. And the fourth one is this. We're praying that God give us this day our daily bread. We are praying for God's provision. There's the next P. God's provision to be imparted. And in this, peti- in this petition, we are renouncing our sinful self-sufficiency. We are recognizing that our God is our Father, and so he will provide for us. We are reorienting our desires to align with his desires. The reason we don't get what we ask for is because we want to please ourselves and not him. So we're reorienting our desires, and we are resting in our Savior to meet our ultimate need. Our ultimate need isn't bread, earthly bread. Our ultimate need is heavenly bread. And then last week we prayed, we we looked at the petition that says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We are praying for God's pardon to be granted. In this fifth petition, we are expressing our desire to have restored fellowship with our Father, but only to the degree that we are seeking restored fellowship with others, which made that fifth petition, as I said last week, according to Augustine, a terrible petition, meaning it's terrifying. Our fellowship with our Father will be hindered to the degree that we have broken fellowship with our brothers and sisters. Which brings us now to the final petition and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. We are praying for God's protection to be afforded. God's protection to be afforded. And that is the end of the Lord's Prayer. Now I know that some of your Bibles may have this. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You probably all learned the prayer that way and probably memorized it that way. How many in here memorized the Lord's Prayer with that ending? Okay. Most of you in here. But... The, most, the best evidence we have is that this little doxology here at the end of this prayer, prayer, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not unscriptural. But the best evidence we have is that it was a later addition to the text. The earliest and best manuscripts do not have this portion of the Lord's Prayer. If you have a newer Bible, you probably see that in a footnote. Either, either it's in the prayer and then there's a footnote that says the earliest manuscripts don't have this. Or it's not in the prayer and it's put in the bottom here. It says some older... Um, Some newer manuscripts have this um, information. But I'm not going to preach on it. It's not going to be part of my my sermon today because I do not believe it is part of Jesus' model prayer. Now, I want to look again at these final three uh, petitions. There's a word that joins all of these final three petitions and helps us see that these 
petitions don't stand on their own, but they're one unit consisting of three aspects of our need before God. We have physical needs, we have moral needs, we have spiritual needs. These last three prayer requests are, are, are a unit. And what connects all of them is the word and. So let's read them again. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. So these last three prayer requests are all about our human need. We are in need. And we don't just need one of these things. We need all of them. We need our Father's provision for our physical bodies, for our needs, for our, to, to live. But that's not all. And even more... We need him to provide for our moral needs. We need a clear conscience. We need pardon of our sin. But that's not all. And, and, and since we do sin, we're prone to wander. Well, we need our Father to protect us. To lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So let's meditate upon this final petition a little bit this morning. Now, if you are honest, at first glance, this final petition may make you a little bit uneasy. Lead us not into temptation. It would seem that from this text, that if we have to ask God not to lead us into temptation, that maybe sometimes he does. So we immediately have a few questions on our hands. If he, if our father loves us, shouldn't we just take it for granted that he won't lead us into temptation? Why should we even have to pray this? If he is our father in heaven and he loves us, shouldn't we just take it for granted that he will not lead us into temptation? And if he does lead us into temptation, and I'm not saying he does, but if he does lead us into temptation, does that mean that God ultimately is the one who is tempting us? Well, one of the principles of sound biblical interpretation is to always interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. So when you come to a passage like this and you're, you've got questions in your mind, you say, well, where else does the Bible talk about God? And where else does the Bible talk about God and temptation? And if you know your scriptures, you know James. Ah, James talks about this, doesn't he? James chapter 1, verse 13, and James says this. Okay. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil... And he himself tempts no one. That's pretty clear. Another, another principle of scriptural interpretation, hermeneutics, is you, you interpret the, the obscure passages in light of the clear. Right? That's pretty clear. It says here, you cannot say that you're being tempted by God. And God cannot be tempted with evil. And he does not tempt anyone. So based upon that very clear word from James, no. God does not lead men into temptation in the sense that he himself is the agent of temptation. Now to continue to understand this, I think we need to point out that in the Greek, the word for temptation is the exact same word sometimes translated in our Bibles as trial or test. Just go look it up. It's the, there's only one word in the Greek. We've got it translated in three or four different words. Sometimes it's translated temptation, Sometimes it's translated trial or test. It's the exact same Greek word. Pyrosmos is the word. That word can be translated depending on the context as a test or as a trial or as a temptation or all of the above at the same time. So let's go back to James here in a second as an example to see how that one word is translated in two different ways. Let's back up one verse. James chapter 1 verse 12 says this, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That's the same word. Pyrosmos. Same word. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted. Now that's the same word, but in verbal form. It's the same word. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So there's that one word, pyrosmos, used in four different places, but translated two, two different ways in one text. Now, one of the dangers of translating things into another language is that we sometimes miss subtle things like this. We use two or three different words to translate one Greek word, and then we assume that there's a great difference between them. 
or that they're not in any way related. But in reality, much care must be taken in the translation process, but also much care must be taken in the interpretation process. So when it comes to temptations or trials, friends, we can say and affirm with the scriptures that God does indeed put his people to the test. Does indeed put his people through trials, pyrosmos. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. He tests us. But we can say and can affirm with the scriptures that he does not tempt us with evil. He does not pyrosmos us with evil. The difference is the intent. God tries. Satan tempts. God's trials are for our good and his glory. Satan's temptations are for our bad and his vainglory. If someone comes at you with a blade, a sharp blade, a very sharp blade, you need to know who's coming at you. If it's a thief who wants to cut your throat and take your money, that's not good. If it's a surgeon and you happen to be on a table under anesthesia, that's good. You need to know who's holding the blade to know the intent of what the, what's going to happen with that blade. You need to understand what the purpose is. One is for good, one is for bad. Here's the deal. Scripture makes it very clear. God's never coming at you with the blade that a thief has to hurt you, to cut you open. But he may come at you with the blade of a surgeon, cutting deep with his word to deal with your sin. And so we have to understand that. So a trial in the hand of God, a trial in the hand of God is intended for Job's good. But temptation in the hand of Satan is intended for Job's bad. Just go look at the book of Job. You see, God has great plans for Job, great purposes. Satan comes and wants to destroy Job, is asking for permission to do it. God gives him permission to do what he wants to do. And still God is sovereign over the whole thing and still is accomplishing his good purposes in the midst of a giant trial that involves massive temptations. Now, that's hard for our brains to kind of sort out sometimes. But Job says it this way. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Job just said, God gives good and God gives evil. Shall we not receive Good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Now, wait a second. You might be thinking, well, Job was just in a bad place. That's Job chapter 2. Things are going pretty bad. He's saying that God just sent him evil, but he really didn't understand everything. Wait a second here. You know, to help us make sure that Job was not mistaken in what he said, the author of the book of Job gives a little side commentary here and says this. In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. By attributing the evil that he was receiving to God and not Satan, but to God, Job did not sin. Job just understood how it works. And Job understood the absolute sovereignty of God. So God can ordain trials that involve evil and yet still not be the source or the author of temptation or sin. Knowing that God rules in that sort of way gives James the confidence to say this regarding our trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet in trials. Or Peter, the courage to say this about our trials. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are being grieved by various trials. Pyrosmos, in both cases. Same word. So here we're praying, lead us not into pyrosmos. And James is saying, rejoice in your pyrosmos. You got to understand who's holding the blade to know what you're asking to be delivered from. We know that God is working everything for our good. Meanwhile, Satan intends evil. So if we are to rejoice in our trials, then why are we asking God to lead us not into them? That's because the sense in which Jesus uses the word here is not a mere trial meant for our good, but a temptation meant for our harm. We are praying that whatever trial or temptation come our way, that we not succumb to Satan's designs for it and thus not enter into sin. 
Remember, this petition, friends, is tied to the previous one. We need forgiveness of sin because we give in to temptation all the time. So, Father, forgive us, and Father, help us. And he will. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, there's a couple other things we need to see this morning in order to properly understand this petition. First, we need to see there's a figure of speech that Jesus uses here in this petition. It's called a litetes. I had to go look that up. What on earth is a litetes? Anyone in here really good at um, grammar and all that kind of stuff uh, know what a litetes is, figure of speech? No? All right, good. Then I don't feel like such an idiot. Good. A litetes is a means of expressing something positive by, by negating its opposite. Let me say that again. It's a means of expressing something positive by negating its opposite. For example, when I say, that's no laughing matter, you know that what I'm really saying is that something is serious. So instead of me just saying, well, that's really serious, I may say, hey, that's no laughing matter. So I state the negative, the opposite, and negate the opposite of it. Okay, does that make sense? Or, or maybe you say something like, um, this is no small matter. There's another example. This is no small matter. But what you mean is this is a big deal. This is a big deal. But instead of saying it's a big deal, you say, that's no small matter. Why are you doing that? You're actually drawing attention to and giving emphasis to what's going on by using that figure of speech. And it's used all throughout the scriptures. Okay, John chapter 6, verse 37 is an example. Jesus says this, all the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So, so instead of just saying, I will accept those who come to me and keep all those who come to me, Jesus uses a light of tease, expressing a truth by negating its opposite. Here's another example. Acts chapter 21, verse 39. Paul, he's responding. He's on trial. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Actually, he's not on trial. He's being dragged away by the Roman guards after he's almost gotten beat up in the, in the temple there. So he says, I'm a citizen of no obscure city. What, he's, what is he trying to say? He said, I'm, I'm from a big town. I'm from a good, a well-known city. I'm from an important city. But instead, he uses a light of tease to draw attention to that by saying, I'm a citizen of no obscure city. So... There's lots of other ones. One we've already quoted this morning. Uh, so shall my word go out that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. By negating the opposite, God is saying that his word will succeed. Okay, and then the parallel there in Isaiah chapter 55 verse 11 shows us what it means. Because it says this. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So that's the figure of speech that Jesus is employing here when he says, lead us not into temptation. We are praying by negating the opposite. We're praying that God keep us away from temptation. So the overall tenor of this prayer request, this, this petition here, is positive. It's not so much what we are asking God not to do, but we are desperately asking him to do what we desperately need. And that can be seen in the parallelism here too. This, this last petition is, has parallelism about it. The, the first clause matches the second clause. So lead us not into temptation and then deliver us from evil. So lead us is equivalent to deliver us. Not into temptation is from evil. So the overall tenor is we are praying for God to desperately lead us and deliver us from sin, from temptation, from the evil one. So, so it's not that Jesus is praying two different things here. The word deliver here means to drag out of danger or to rescue. So here's the main point of this morning. We desperately need our Father to guide us and rescue us from evil. And from different types of evil. First of all, we desperately need our Father to guide us and rescue us from the evil of our world. From the evil of our world. Now let me say something about the word evil here in this, in this text. It's a little bit hard to understand what, it, it could be either translated the evil one, and some of your translations may say that, or just a general evil. But I think Jesus uh, leaves it sort of some ambiguity there, because I think the meaning involves both. So here's the first thing. We desperately need our Father to guide us and rescue us from the evil of our world. We live in a fallen world, and we desperately need God's protection in the midst of this fallen world. It's exactly what Jesus prays for us in John chapter 17. 
verse 15, he says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. This world, although never outside of the sovereign rule of God, is under the dominion of Satan. Satan is, is called the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And according to Ephesians 2, prior to knowing Christ, we all gladly serve the God of this world. Ephesians 2, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But once we were saved... By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we were, according to Colossians 1, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so now we live, we live in this dark world waiting for the final consummation of Christ's kingdom when he returns. But we still live here. We live in this world, in this dark, in this decaying world. And we are called to live as people who are holy in an unholy world. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we are, we are in a dark world and we are called to be holy. And so we need this prayer request. We need this petition because of the world we live in. Now this does not mean we are called to hide away in some sort of holy huddle or Baptist bubble or whatever we want to call it. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So we are called not to hide We are called to holiness. We are called to be holy people in an unholy world. So we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil of this world. And we have God's promised Holy Spirit to give us power to fight for holiness. 1 Corinthians 4, 4, little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We have the Holy Spirit in us to give us the strength and the power, the ability, the might to fight for holiness in the midst of an unholy world. And so we must encourage one another, exhort one another, hold one another accountable to live by the Spirit. And the evidence that we are living by the Spirit will be seen by what our eyes are fixed on. Colossians 3.1 says, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So we endure the trials of this world, the trials that God in his providence has allowed. We seek deliverance by the power of the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body and by believing in the Spirit's promises. We believe in God's word. We believe these things that we've just read. We believe things like 2 Timothy 2, verses four, verse four, chapter 4, verses, uh, verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Do you believe that? That's how we fight for holiness. We believe those promises. Or this one, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, because we want what's eternal. We don't want to settle for what the world has to offer. And friends, we want what the world has to offer too easily. Therefore, we desperately need to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because we don't want to settle for what the world has to offer. But we also need to be rescued from the, not only the evil of, uh, of this world, we also need to be delivered from the evil of our enemy. Our enemy. Our enemy, our adversary, the accuser of the brothers. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, let me remind you real quick here. This is a corporate prayer. Lead us. Friends, we need to be praying for each other. Don't just pray that, that God helps you with your temptations and, and that you won't go after and lust after the things of the world. Pray that for others. Pray that for me. We need to be praying that each other will be led not into temptation. So our enemy, our accuser, 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you had suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Be watchful, be sober-minded. These are wartime words. We are to be on guard. Satan loves to tempt us. Yes, we are tempted by all that is in this world, but Satan is the master tempter. And that's what he's called. When, when Jesus goes to be tempted in the wilderness, he is, he is approached by the tempter. Paul, as, he stre- as he's stressed and worried about the churches in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, says this, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, we could bear it no longer. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor was in vain. We're in a battle. We are in a war against a real enemy. Satan is not imaginary. Satan is not a cartoon character. One one of the biggest problems with with talking to people about Satan is to help them understand he's real. And he's not this little guy in a red jumpsuit with a tail and horns and a pitchfork who pokes you in the side of the head to try to get you to do bad things while you've got some sort of angel with your face on it on this side with a halo and a white cloud and all of that. That's not Satan. You don't want to see Satan. If God were to open your eyes to see that spiritual reality, you'd be so hideous. But he clothes himself. He robes himself as an angel of light. And so he's a tempter. He's he's always out trying to destroy the brothers, the brethren. So we are in a battle. We are to, as Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. These are wartime words. The danger for any nation and the danger for our nation today, and and, and I'm not going to get into politics. I never get into politics from the pulpit. But if a nation begins to underestimate its enemy or begin to think a battle's done when it's really not done, that nation is in trouble. And and so we see our, quote-unquote, war on terror and all of a sudden, there's these terrorists running across Iraq, killing massive amounts of people. And there's people going, well, I thought we were done with that. Don't underestimate your enemy. Don't think he's not real. And don't think the war is not actually going on. It is. Don't fall asleep on the watch like the disciples did. Don't pretend that you're living in peacetime. We are living in wartime. Too many American Christians think we're living in peacetime. We're not. We're living in the midst of a war. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, we read earlier the, the armor of God. And I'm not going to read the whole section again, but I just want to take us to verse 18. 
Because because maybe maybe you're like me. When you were a kid, you learned the armor of God, right? Did you did you ever get the toy set that came with all the armor of God? You get the little breastplate of uh, righteousness. You get the helmet of salvation. It was really cheap toys because it was you know some Christian manufacturer. Christians always do things kind of like secular world, but just a little cheaper. And so you know they were cheap toys. And so you put on all the stuff, and you have your armor of God, and you learn the songs. I don't know any of them now, but you learn the songs, you learn all the armor of God. But you know what was always neglected was verse 18. Because you got all this armor on, and usually we stop with the sword of the Spirit. You got all your defensive armor, now you got your one offensive weapon. Go at them, little Christian. But verse 18 is the key to the armor of God. It says this. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Not only are we at war, we should be locked, have our arms locked together as we're at war. This isn't an individual battle you're fighting. This is a corporate battle, the church. We battle Satan together. We battle evil together. We fight together. So that means we have to be people who pray the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Lord's Prayer. I mean, this prayer is awesome. The more I study, Jesus didn't leave anything out. We have to be praying at all times for one another. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So we desperately need our Father to guide us and rescue us from the evil of our world and the evil of our enemy. And I think you all know what the last one is. We desperately need our Father to guide us and rescue us from the evil of ourselves. Right here. When it comes down to it, our biggest problem isn't our world or our enemy, it's ourselves. We love to say the devil made me do it. But James chapter 1, the passage we looked at earlier, goes on. It doesn't just stop with verse 13, which says, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It says this in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own Desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We love to put our guilt off on someone else, or even put our temptations off on someone else. We've loved that from the garden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 11. God says, Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave me, gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. It's the woman. And men are still saying that to this day. It's the woman that you gave me. Notice who he's ultimately blaming there. It's the woman that you gave me. God doesn't tempt anyone. And then the woman says... When he asked, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. We blame anyone other than ourselves. We, okay, like Adam, even blame God. Which is why James reminds us it's not God's fault. Which is why lead us into t- to temptation does not imply that God is in any way ever guilty of tempting us. Instead, it is the passions of our own flesh. It's what's earthly in us. Really, when we are asking God to lead us not into temptation, we are praying that God lead us in a direction opposite of where our feet are inclined to go. Let me say that again. Really, what we're praying when we pray that God lead us not into temptation, we are praying that God lead us in a direction opposite of where our feet are inclined to go. We are asking God to change the course that our sinful hearts like to set. That's why I chose to sing Come Thou Fountain this morning. Because I love that line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's just another way to say, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me 
from evil, my evil. Now, you may be saying evil. That's kind of a rough word. You know, that's kind of a tough word, evil. I mean, I really wouldn't call us evil. Well, Jesus was speaking to his followers when he says in Matthew 7, 11, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus is talking to his disciples and saying, hey, you're evil. Just letting you know you're evil and you know how to treat your children well. How much more your Father who is perfect is going to answer your prayers. Friend here, if you're an unbeliever this morning, you are totally enslaved to your sin. You are bound by your sinful nature. You are totally depraved. If you are a believer, then you've been set free. You are dead to sin, but sin is still being put to death in you. And therefore, you continue to battle against your depravity, against your sin nature, against indwelling sin. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, 15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want but, the, but I do the very thing I hate. And then in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil, Paul uses the word evil too, the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Paul understood that this life is a constant battle against the sin in us. And that he, in and of himself, didn't have the ability to fight sin. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That's why Paul, right after this, says, Therefore there is no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So evil. We must fight the evil one. We must fight the evil in our world. And we must fight the evil within So we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we do so with confidence. We do so with confidence because, number one, we are united to Christ and the Holy Spirit is at work in us, making us holy, giving us victory over evil. There's the power to defeat temptation. And number two, we are united to Christ and therefore his righteousness, his perfect battle against sin and temptation and evil has been credited to us. Jesus never gave in. And that was credited to me and to you if you're a believer. Matthew 4.1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was led into temptation to battle the evil one for our sake so that we can confidently pray not to be led into temptation but to be delivered from evil. So now we fight evil daily knowing that the battle has already been won for us. So our greatest hope when we pray, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil, is that Jesus has obeyed that perfectly for us and he is the guarantee that God will answer that prayer. He is the guarantee that God will answer that prayer. Hebrews 4, 14, and I'm going to conclude with these verses. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, listen to this, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, based upon that, (laughs) based upon that, let us then, Hebrews 4, 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That's why you can pray, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil with absolute confidence. Rock solid confidence. You find me someone who's given into their temptation and fallen into sin, including myself, And I'll show you someone who did not pray that. God will answer that prayer. If we simply follow the model that Jesus has given us in the Lord's Prayer, my goodness, how much better our prayer lives would be. I wonder, why why do we ignore our Lord so easily? I want to conclude with this verse, 2 Peter 2, 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That promise right there in 2 Peter 2.9 is a source of joy for the believer and a source of fear for the unbeliever. 
The Christian knows that his prayer for deliverance will be answered because of what Christ has done for him on the cross. He knows that he already has been rescued and will be rescued. But the unbeliever, unless you repent, friend, if there's any unbelievers in here this morning, unless you repent and put your faith in Christ, you will be kept for a day, a day of devastating judgment, according to 2 Peter 2.9. So turn, turn from your sin, put your faith in Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you do love us so much. You are our Father in heaven. And you are to be hallowed. You are holy and righteous, majestic, glorious. As we think about, even as I mentioned the book of Job this morning, Father, I can't read the book of Job without just being astounded by your sovereignty. And as you go on and on at the end of that book and show Job how amazing you are, I just want to be like Job and cover my mouth and shut up. Hallowed be your name. And Lord, we do pray that your kingdom, your rule, Lord, that it would come in each and every one of our lives that you'd rule more, more fully. And in this church, Lord, as I get ready to head off on a sabbatical, Father, I can leave on sabbatical with great confidence because I know I don't rule. You, Father, rule. Jesus, you rule Harbins. Your kingdom and your will, your will be done, Father. Lord, we don't understand your secret will, but God, give us the grace just to submit to whatever you sovereignly decree in this church and in our lives. And God, give us the grace to get in the word so that we might know your revealed will and know how easy your life will be if we'll just believe in the sufficiency of this book. And Father, we do pray that you give us our daily bread. We have needs, physical needs. Some of them here in this body are, are desperate. And some don't feel like they have any needs and don't even realize that they do have needs. But Father, I pray that this body would never let a single person in this church go without because we are to corporately gather and meet each other's needs. And Father, I pray that you would forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lord, my, my big prayer for the summer is that, Lord, if there be anybody in this church that is holding anything against one another, Oh, Lord, that they would deal with it while I'm gone. Because my biggest fear is that you, that we will not be in an intimate fellowship with you, Father, because we can't get along. And Lord, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. The evil of this world, the evil of our enemy. But most of all, these hearts that still have indwelling sin in them. Sanctify us, in other words, Father. Sanctify us. Make us who we already are in Christ. Lord, we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.